Well, hello there, and welcome back to Prairie Design Lab, a podcast all about architecture and design and innovation from a prairie perspective. The lab is produced with the students, the faculty, the graduates of the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba, and by allies and collaborators around the world with deep connections to Manitoba. We're especially excited today because this is episode one of season two. We created 28 episodes in season one. In Winnipeg, I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. Here in Western Canada, we had an exceptionally hot and dry summer with forest fires, with evacuations of indigenous communities, with shrinking rivers and stunted crops, skies full of smoke. Change is underway. Change is at the heart of today's conversation. I'm talking about massive change. Today, we're joined by a woman with a deep connection to Manitoba and to change. She is IMOBC Williams, BC for short, the co-founder and chief insights officer of the Massive Change Network, the global design consultancy that she co-founded with her husband, Bruce Mao. BC is also the co-host of the Health 2049 podcast and founder of Mao MC24. BC was born in Winnipeg to immigrant parents, a Nigerian father and a Jamaican mother who migrated to Winnipeg for university. In Winnipeg, her father studied and became a specialist in microbiology and virology at the University of Manitoba, and her mother became a nurse. BC has a degree in journalism from the soon-to-be-renamed Ryerson University. She and her husband and business partner, Bruce Mao, are known around the world as analysts of and advocates for massive change. They're based in Evanston, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. B.C. Williams joins me from there. Hello, B.C. Williams. Hello, Terry. Your mother is still living in Winnipeg, but your father passed away last year. After graduating from the University of Manitoba, he had quite a career. What did he do? My father is a professor of microbiology and virology, but did not teach at University of Manitoba, but in New York. He was at the New York Blood Center. He's a scientist. He's uh, worked on the last uh, pandemic, which was uh, AIDS, and then actually founded some retroviral medications for hepatitis C. And so that's his work as a researcher. And then he um, subsequently moved back to Nigeria to then redesign the medical school (laughs) There, based on best practices from America for medical mm-hmm. biology, certainly in virology, and design that um, combining the two, sort of a third way, if you will, in uh, in his hometown of um, Ibadan, University of Ibadan in uh, Nigeria. So it's a full circle. I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about your prairie identity. Being the child of two immigrants, you describe yourself as a prairie chauvinist and you describe your model of success in Winnipeg in this way. Be smart and practical. Hard work will out. Plug in your car. Wear warm boots. Make sure your kids know how to swim and skate. Why do you have such an affection for this place? Well, thank you for having me on your show, Jerry. I'm so delighted to be here. Um, Winnipeg, I think, is one of the most special places on the planet. I feel like I was 
really lucky about the places that my parents chose to live, even though it's freezing cold in the summer and boiling hot in the summer. You mean freezing cold in the winter? (laughs) That's what did I? (laughs) There's a different kind of hot. There's a story about hot too, where I didn't actually realize I was cold until I went someplace hot. And we went to Jamaica one Christmas and that flipped it for me. I didn't realize, you know, like a frog in water that there's a difference, but um, Winnipeg for me, it's my North star always has been. It's the place where um, I learned to dream, where I learned to imagine and having that expanse and that possibility to do anything. That's how we were raised. And that's how the prairie was. Think it, do it. You could be it. And so I thought that was really special. And I didn't realize how special my hometown of Winnipeg was until I went abroad. And I realized not everybody gets that opportunity to just think of things and do things. Um, and, that <laughs> and then also that ability, because we're in the center of the earth and because there's all this expanse and then there's all of this space, always wondering what everyone else is doing when I realized when I left home and came back that all the cool stuff, all the cool people, all the interesting innovations actually come from Winnipeg. We may leave, but we start there with this ability to dream, the ability to think of things, because I think you, it's the searching and the ability when you search and the the landscape is so flat that you think you can see the answer. And that's what I love. <laughs> and then that's what, um, that was the grounding start. You have described yourself as neither an architect nor a designer, but as design and architecture adjacent. What's that mean? It's a funny question, Terry. Well, I am design and architecture adjacent. So my husband is a designer and uh, he is not an, like, he's neither an architect as well, but he is a communications designer and one who gives shape and form to ideas and platforms. And when I met Bruce, I was at school, journalism school, you know, I thought about the world very differently from a humanities perspective and design. And certainly the Cartesian methodology that you have in in the humanities, that serves us well, our research. But in design, they have another methodology, which is actually um, problem-based, but also experience-based. And when I learned about that, I had a big mind explosion because I realized we could be applying design methodology to the humanities. It would change how we perceived the humanities in such a profound way um, and things that people don't value like history or philosophy. If you actually put a design methodology on top of you know, the um, historical humanities Cartesian model, you realize that you could be an entrepreneurial learner of ideas and can apply them to real world problems. And then the relevancy issue goes away. But uh, Bruce at the time was working with um, a large number of architects at the time he was working with Frank Gehry and Rem Coolhouse. And it just seemed to be a, um, a turnstile, if you will, of really interesting architects. And I was learning about the built environment and our world. And as a person who's interested in how things are made or why things are here, I started to get a a real masterclass um, and an education in terms of how we design cities, how we build forms, how we design rooms. Why is this important? Why do people behave in these spaces? All those why questions uh, to the extent that... um, 
I looked, started to looking at the world a little differently. And then I looked at the world a lot differently. And then it made me realize that um, more people could be captains of their own ship if they understood a little bit about how the world is made rather than how you consume it. And that that comprehensivist way of looking at all of the material, the people, the time, right? The, all of the components that go in even to a simple thing like a, a chair or a table, never mind a house, a building, a city, um, became really fascinating for me. And it made me rethink how I wanted to live, how I could live, and by extension, how we could make the lives of other people better, not only in the built environment, but programmatically. So that was my lesson uh, being design adjacent, but also um, the responsibility of designers became evident to me too. I don't think there's another profession where if you make something as a house and the house leaks or it breaks or it falls down, um, your grandchildren and your grandchildren's grandchildren are liable for the design mistakes that you make. And, and that's also something that I thought, hmm, that's a big responsibility to take on. And it made me have compassion for them, but it also made me think about how we could build better, how we could design better, and how we could have a better conversation about the materials in our lives and, and how we build for not only ourselves, but for those less fortunate than us or those in need. How did you and Bruce Mel connect in the first place? <laughs> That's a very funny story. So a very old friend of mine, another Winnipigian, who you should have on your show. <laughs> Who's that? Um, it's Albert Shum. And Albert is now the senior vice president for Microsoft. So he builds things really at scale. Um, but we were very good friends growing up. Um, and uh, I went to school at Ryerson and he went to school at Waterloo. And he was, we loved design. But he was really in it at Waterloo as a mechanical engineer. So he invited me to, it's really funny, a party at Waterloo and then to a design exhibition. And I then met the very, at the time, quite young uh, Bruce Kuwabara, who was just formulating his firm, Kuwabara Payne McKenna, who yeah. designed the hydro building in Winnipeg. Yes, which is I know amazing. it. Yes, of course. Yes. And so uh, I met them there and then I became immersed in this world of design. And then by accident, it's very funny. Um, one of my friends that I'd met there had a studio with Bruce as a designer. They had a company called Public Good and they made uh, design communications for public good companies. After lunch, Bruce joined Stephen and I for lunch and then I kind of fell in love there. And then that was it. And then I was, uh, my friends are like, you're dating who? And they're like, this guy is like, you know, Bruce Mao. And they're like, what, Bruce Mao? Like the Bruce Mao? And I said, well, yeah, okay, yes, the Bruce Mao. And then I said, Bruce, who are you? <laughs> I said, my friends keep calling you the Bruce Mao. <laughs> and then I... <laughs> And then I started to understand like what he meant into their world and then this whole world of design. But at the time, I had no idea who he was or what he did or how he did it. And I just thought he was an interesting fellow who um, knew a lot about books. <laughs> on what values did you two click 
So that's an interesting question. Um, we clicked on public good, the idea of, you know, um, leaving the world better than you found it. We clicked on big ideas. We clicked on books. Um, at the time I was still a student and um, I was studying Chinese history. I was, you know, just interested in the world because our worlds were so different, but we wanted to do the same thing. So in my sense, a journalism school telling stories or illuminating the lives of those whose lives are slightly in, um, invisible as we discussed before with Stuart McLean and Bruce was um, working with- You mean, um, sorry, French. you mean the Stuart McLean? The Stuart, the, the Stuart McLean, right, who was my professor at school. And I used and to be really, his producer at Morningside at CBC. Right. And so you could see how the world gets smaller in these morphic fields. And then, by the way, Terry, like the work that you're doing about public good and working with indigenous folks and giving mm -hmm. them voices. And I think that, you know, even though you're not a born and bred Winnipigian, but you still are Winnipigian at heart, the, the idea here is you know, that there's something about um, caring for your fellow person, right? That you're attuned to their needs. And it's something that Bruce, having grown up in Sudbury, another harsh climate, mining, et cetera, a little different from our prairie home, but there's something about this sense of community, about caring, about making sure that people are okay. You know, 30 seconds, things could go very wrong because it's so cold. And it's that appreciation for, gosh, if, you know, we have these experiences, what if we could like translate that in um, to be mindful for companies or corporations or whatever, to sort of think about the impact of the things that they do and other people who may or may not understand um, that they don't have control over their life, but they could have control over the life if they asked the right questions. So we were kind of public good rattle shakers, you know, if something's wrong, let's fix it. What do you mean by massive change? Very good question, Terry. So for us, um, when we started to work together, so we made a pact that we wouldn't work together for a long time. And then we wanted to find a vehicle where we could bring both of our values and our energies and our unique skill sets together in a way that made sense. And when Bruce decided that he was going to sell his company, Bruce Mal Design, and he wanted to do something new because he could see, um, and we could see a new way of design, a new designer was needed, that the world was changing so rapidly. So we said there were massive changes afoot and um, we could get behind massive change. And massive change for me meant I overbred. I have three children. You're supposed to have two. And so I was recycling and I was doing, you know, all of the things to minimize my footprint. But I really felt a responsibility that, you know, that was a this is a choice that I've made, although I'm mindful of my footprint, that I wanted to leave the world for them better than I found it. I could see that there were problems that were arising. I felt that it was um, if we, because we could. Uh, design a methodology and a platform that would allow for space for uh, the problems that need to be solved, because that will be, you know, I don't want to pass the check forward, but at the same time realizing, you know, this is a, a global enterprise and this is a, every all hands on deck, that we would build a, a methodology and a platform and a place for people to learn 
how to work together, how to collaborate, and how to collectively not only solve problems, but tell those stories. And um, it's funny, it sounds rather hubristic um, and ambitious, <laughs> uh, but that's the thing about design too, because if you systematically, if you have a vision, you systematically plan, it'll, it'll come true. And so a large part of our work now having built the platform, having, you know, written a couple of the books and the, the 500 page tome and stress test it at scale in the real world. Uh, some of the projects that we're working on now are exactly at that scale, like dream come true. If you ever thought about a little girl in Winnipeg who's looking at it at the, uh, the you know, the, the sunflowers, um, everything that I would want to work on or have a small part of shaping a strategy. I have the, the privilege um, and very humbled by it to add my prairie two cents, if you will, um, to, to, to the discussion in terms of <laughs> how we can imagine an optimistic, abundant, and inspirational future, even as we're applying them to real problems. And you are designated as the Chief Insights Officer for the Massive Change Network. So what's that mean you do on a daily basis? So, you know, what I do, I do a tremendous amount of research and analysis. I think that comes back to my journalism background and also um, active research. So my job as part of it is the, uh, well, the research, the development, the synthesis and the analysis of ideas and uh, trends um, how they apply to people and businesses and so on. And then um, really looking at um, one of the principles in our book is fact-based optimism. So really stress testing the data. If you have a hypothesis for an idea for a business or a program, looking at the global context and for us with massive change, we made a, a real pact um, so one of the things we realized in our research early days around 2006, 2007 in the other age was that sustainability is important, right? Climate is a real thing. And in, in the analysis that we had then, if you imagine 2004, that 2025 would be a tipping point. And, you know, time moves quickly, right? And so one of the things that we learned um, these documents are now unclassified from a social scientist that as far as 2005, people were unwilling to pay more for or sacrifice for to sustain the planet. And with that, and this was, these were documents that the United States government had that, um, and that they were now declassified, not so much that, but that the professor who had done this analysis was saying like, he's the tipping point man, deciding like, who's going to be in power in what country, et cetera, where are the global threats? Mm -hmm. So with that, we made a very pointed design decision when we started Massive Change Network, that we would think of positive ways, imagine different ways of talking about sustainability and climate change that didn't feel like a stick, but that was a carrot. And so using inspiration and beauty uh, as strategies to get our clients and people to see that, yes, we're going to make things. Yes, we're going to build things, 
but think about all of life. Think about how we coexist. Think carefully about the products that we're using. And in some cases for us, it's like perhaps we don't build something or make something because it's not adding value and what it is taking out of the environment. It's not elevated enough to use that time, energy and resources to build. We've been doing this with our clients for the last 10, 15 years now. And you can imagine now um, how important that is and that companies are doing it. So being architecture adjacent, you know, one of the things that I learned as they were building, and these are just anecdotal things from a chief insights officer's perspective, it's all information, but I learned that 30% of the building is waste, that whatever you do, 30% of it's thrown out. It's a staggering number. And when you start to think, um, oh, well, we're going to be building probably 10 or 12 new cities out of whole cloth in the next 10 or 15 years, and we start with one third of it being wasteful, mm-hmm. this makes you a little bit of an evangelist to say, okay, guys, like, or guys and girls, when you're thinking about this, you need to think about the materials we're doing. We actually need to design the efficiency into the materials. And because you know, Right. Designers know. I mean, design is really the allocation of resources. Whatever you determine is important. That designers could really play a role in um, reimagining the future role. I mean, we hire a designer, you're hiring us to spend the money appropriately and wisely. So we know where to put the value. We know where to um, where you should add and where you should cut. Does that answer your question? Well, yes, but another question related to that is just recently, the International Panel on Climate Change brought out its most recent report, which is full of facts, which make it hard to be optimistic. Uh, We're heading for COP26 in Glasgow, where people from around the world will gather to talk about this. We saw up close this summer, uh, a changed climate. Is it a result of global climate change or was it just a hiccup? but we've been experiencing very intense change in our weather. Where do you find the optimism in those facts? I'm more than optimistic, I'm bullish. The data shows um, that certainly by 2030, provided we start now, we can uh, get in front of this energy and climate crisis. There are companies and researchers that are investing untold sums to solve this problem, and they're actively working on it. I would say, and this is our message to them, the problem is complex and complicated. People don't really understand the timelines, but we're really on the curve, right? So there's the experience curve. Mm -hmm. And currently, solar, wind, hydrogen, you name all of the different energy sources that we're using. Currently, right now, they're incredibly expensive. But by the time we get to 2030, uh, all of these modalities will be worked out. You know, not fully, Mm -hmm. but they will be operational. And then it'll become easier and it'll be exponential. So looking at that data, really talking to people who know about this, and really it's going to take all of civil society and everyone together um, we can get there. Now, it's, there's, again, we're going to need policy change. So some of the policies will be needed to change so that you can get business and governments and citizens and researchers, et cetera. But I can honestly tell you, Terry, that 
while it seems scary now, the other part is the narrative needs to change. I mean, are we the, the generation who we, they will solve it? And in fact, the data shows that we will go faster, this new Gen Z, but this generation has known only change. In fact, the change is not a terrible thing for them. Change is not a dirty word and they're adaptive. And what we're finding is that all the other generations are learning from the very young Gen Z in terms of how to mobilize, how to galvanize and how to solve problems. And that as we go through all of these different, whether it's hydrogen, electricity, et cetera, that the impetus is faster now, design it now as fast as humanly possible now so that um, we can have nice things. And I don't mean that glibly. I mean that it's, it's really the trajectory shows that we're, um, we're on track to solve these problems. The difference, and this is what we've been seeing, is again, you need to apply design to this. It's not an engineering problem. It's not a business problem. It's not an agricultural problem. It's actually all of these issues laddered together. One, all of these different experts, a climate scientist is not going to solve climate change or global warming. But if they use their expertise working with an engineer, working with a farmer, working with a policy writer, working with, you know, et cetera, et cetera, a designer, an architect, and, and what have you, and material scientists, when you go across the full spectrum and you have full collaboration, you can see then that we all move faster. It's not a siloed issue. It's a, a civil society across all the professions need to get together, lend their expertise, and work adjacent solve the problem. The firm's projects in the past include, among other things, a thousand-year plan for the city of Mecca, uh, creating a museum of biodiversity uh, in Panama, designing a social movement in Guatemala, rethinking design in Denmark. What in practical terms did those projects involve? It's imagination and creativity. Every single one of those projects there was a problem to solve. So in the case of Denmark, it was the young architects couldn't build because they had a history, a huge tradition and Danish modern, which was liberating at one time became oppressive. Nary, a, a, an outsider, only Danish architects built things in, in Denmark. If somebody outside of the Danish culture built it, it was unpatriotic. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the idea here is, You've got these young designers and architects. So at the time, this was not to name drop, but this was a while ago, 20, almost 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, Bjarke Ingels just finished you know, university and he was working with Rem Koolhaas and he's a very talented guy, but Bjarke was interning with Rem and then he decided he wanted to start his own firm. Left you know, uh, Amsterdam, Rotterdam and went back home yep. and there was no space for him to build. There was a whole generation of these very talented folks. And so we also worked with Ram, et cetera, and tried to imagine for the Biennale at the time, the architecture Biennale, what could Denmark do? Now, at that time, Denmark was the most homogenous country on the planet, had a small population. You know, if you could do any change, you could do it there. So what we did is we took these young architects and then working with the Danish Architecture Center, and had a speculative thing. What if Denmark could be the um, immigration center for Europe? What if Denmark could produce all of the energy for the rest of Europe because of the wind? 
that speculative program that we had these young designers work together and build and design and prototype this world of a zero waste energy. And it was a, it was a bit of a joke where you had like an energy incinerator and it blew out smoke rings and you could have a ski ramp. What was the speculative ideas now built? So Bianca Ingalls and his team, they took those speculative ideas and they engineered and they researched and they designed. And now they have an inc- a garbage incinerator that uh, blows out only clean air. And then the condensation comes down and it creates a ski hill in a very flat Denmark, right? Which is the vision documents are there now. They have the best amenity for five hours around in a neighborhood, right? Underserved typically where you put these things. Well, now the most vulnerable and the underserved have the most beautiful thing in Denmark, which is the ski hill. So they have access to this. The Swedish ski team train on the garbage incinerators ramp. Okay. And, and that's kind of what we do. And the same thing where in Panama, you know, Frank Gary's wife, so Bruce and Frank work very closely together too. What we learned for architecture is you're designing these programs. So Frank Gary's wife is Panamanian. This is where we had the Bilbao effect, right? Where every time Frank made a building, you turned it around. Panama was uh, coming to the, coming to the end of America, being the steward of their port and that they were going to take it back. Again, this is kind of long-term planning and that they wanted to do something that would attract resources to their country. So we looked around and again, what do you have here? You know, Denmark had wind and flatland, but ingenuity. In this case, in Panama, they had a rainforest. They had a unique situation on the planet where they had two, two oceans and a land. And so working with the Smithsonian we thought, wow, like this is the great biotic interchange. This is where the animals from the south ran up when the, and the animals from the north ran south. And you can see where time stops and begins in Panama. And there are all these treasures that were there. So uh, the idea was to illuminate that treasure and make a museum of biodiversity, which didn't exist before. So we made that up and then we built it and now it exists because using the imagination for the resources of the things that are available there that are unique to that place, which creates beauty and wonder is how we kind of work. And then again, we take our work seriously because the investment for the Panamanians to build a Frank Gehry building of this Museum of Biodiversity, you know, would be the equivalent of like 60... Getty centers. At that time, that was a billion dollars for a cultural institution. It took 13 years to build, uh, but we were there with them for the whole entire journey. But we also recognized that you have to be mindful of the donors again, painting with money, but care. You have to really care and love what you're working on. You have to care and love for the people that you're working with and have everybody along for the same vision. And it becomes, it's a very beautiful thing for Panama, but the idea isn't the building. The idea, it's a beacon for them to network, for them to educate, for them to um, broadcast the rest of the beauty of, of, of the nation. And my favorite thing about that project, Terry, uh, they now teach science. Until this building was done, until we actually were documenting and highlighting the natural world, science wasn't part of the curriculum of Panama. 
And now every child looks at their landscape, the flora and the fauna, and they are now studying science and uh, to really understand their world and be a steward of it. To me, that's the most touching thing. Again, a nice uh, upside of, of, of that kind of project. And, and Guatemala was about dreaming. You know, and at that time, our kids are very, very young and they had just finished 36 years of civil war. And the Minister of Education wrote a letter and saying uh, they saw an exhibit that had done in Tokyo, New Tokyo Lifestyle, about reimagining life in Tokyo for young people. At that time, they had a minimum of four hour commute. And they'd gone to visit that exhibit. They wanted um, their children to dream again. And I just said to Bruce, like, it's, there's not a question. We have to go. We ha- you know, like, it's heartbreaking for children to think of a child who cannot imagine their future, who had lost the ability, they'd lost the ability to dream. They could only imagine, you know, violence, um, corruption, and death. And we went and we discovered one of the most beautiful countries on the planet. I mean, I'm just, Winnipeg's beautiful, everywhere's beautiful, but this place was, it's really the land of eternal sunshine. The most incredible people who really had the will to make their lives better and rebuild. So designing for a culture of hope, this is for me, and I'll just share this with you, where I realized the privilege, but also the sheer luck and the gratitude that I had for growing up and being born and raised in a city like Winnipeg, where justice, human rights, fair recourse, open expanse to dream, stability. I'll admit I wasn't grateful for that when I was growing up. I thought it was boring. Uh, But when you go to a place like Guatemala and you tell the story of where you're from and somebody says to you, I would have given anything to grow up in what you call boring. It it changed me as a person, really changed for me. Um, The glibness is gone. And the deep, true love of the prairie values, the ways of thinking, the ways of being, the ways of doing the action with your fellow citizen in mind, for the most part, um, I realized had formed me deeply and that we take it for granted. And that that sunshine, that ability to do anything, think anything, do anything, uh, that freedom is really precious. We brought Winnipeg and Canada and those values uh, to, to Guatemala. And, and mm-hmm. it's those things where these ideas of children dreaming, imagining, exploring, um, whatever you can think, you can build. And that's really our practice. And that's really why I'm bullish on the power of design. And that's why I'm bullish that if we decide to dream that we want to take care of all of life on this planet, we can do it. And we will when there's the will. There's a path. On a related subject, you produce a number of episodes of a new podcast called Health 2049. And I want to play a little bit, a little excerpt of that. Uh, here's your introduction to the second episode called Exploring Healthcare as a Public Utility. I'm BC Williams. You're listening to Health 2049. This would require, for instance, it would require people to believe that other people are as equal to them and other people deserve what you deserve. It requires people to think, you know, I'm willing to allow my 
taxes to go into a system to potentially pay for somebody else. You just have to believe that. So why did you decide to tackle the need for massive change in healthcare? Healthcare is a passion of mine. So my father is a, a, a microbiologist, virologist. My mom's a nurse. I think medicine is the family business. Uh, it skipped a generation. Uh, <laughs> they looked around and they had three kids that they you know, were raising in Canada and all of us are in the arts and related fields. However, uh, it skipped a generation, but um, my daughter is now in, in medicine. But I realized that you know, how I'm architecture and design adjacent, I'm also medical and related services adjacent uh, because of, <laughs> of, of my parents and, uh, um, and what they do and how, and how they lived. And so being around um, the conversations of our time, uh, you know, certainly around AIDS and hepatitis and all of those pandemics that we're doing, and my father very involved in that. And certainly SARS, um, we got this call from New York State Medicaid to, to see if we could apply design to healthcare. And I thought, okay, like, <laughs> why say no? But I've always thought in the back of my mind that uh, healthcare needed design. So I studied it for two years and it was really going from beds and heads, as they say, to value-based care. They were engineering the systems, they were finding efficiencies and an insight that I had, and I took a group of students of Pratt through to think, okay, well, how can design beyond service design play a role in the experience of healthcare? And we had a real breakthrough that health and medical related fields, while it is full of design, there's no design uh, thinking applied. There's no consistency, there's no comprehensiveness. And when you start to look at that and you think about the, ex the experience of design, you realize like the Americas spends $3.8 trillion with a T annually on health and related care. Of the three trillion, one is fixed. The other is full of design decisions. It's what they're gonna build, what we're gonna make. And so when you start to think about that, I realized we well, need to apply real systems design to this the experience of the materials, the experience of the rooms and so on. So with that, I realized, oh, there's a big role that design can play here beyond the building. We can really get into the nitty gritty to actually design the experience so that it's beautiful, not only for the patients, but also for the practitioners. And not only for the practitioners, for everyone in the ecosystem so that they can actually have a designed experience and to flip the script from a sick system to a well system. And so that's the idea for that. And then, you know, seeing is believing, Terry, right? So I can talk about that. But what you need to do is actually world build. So we needed to actually make, have storytellers and designers actually build what beautiful could look like. And so that people could imagine it and know what to ask for. Well, as, as you've said, design is simply a smart allocation of resources, which can be applied That's to it. medicine, but can be applied to architecture, can be applied to farming, can be applied to so many things, right? Terry, you're right. And so that's the key. So everyone says, are you a doctor? No, I'm not going to um, put my hands on anything. I'm not going to do any surgery and I'm not going to do any procedures. The role of design, um, as from our perspective, how we use it is more of a communication tool. And it's a way of comprehensively studying, understanding, researching the situation then the secret power is the ability to tell the story, but also to visualize it at the same time so that others can see 
the story or the issue, right, themselves. So generally for our clients, they already have, they have the answer, they know what to do. But what they don't do and what they couldn't do at the time was visualize and articulate the story they wanted to tell to allow all the vectors to line up so that everyone could see the strategy and then execute against the plan. And that's where massive change comes in because you have the comprehensive view that crosses barriers and disciplines into looking at in a much more comprehensive way. Exactly. It's orchestration. So, you know, when you ask me like insights, well, we, it's like setting a table. Someone has a problem, you know, um, and they usually express a problem as a solution because they work from what they know. So I need a logo. I need a brand. I need a building. I need, I need medicine. I need whatever, you know, that story. And what we do is we listen. And when we're listening, you know, it's like, hmm, actually you don't need a building. You actually need to design the communication between the different departments. Or you need to redesign how you describe yourself, right? Because tools and technologies and methodologies are evolving. You realize that everything comes down to a, a common language, Terry. Almost every problem that we face in the world, I guarantee it, if you really strip it away, it has to do with communication. People are really trying to explain to whomever what it is that they want, what they need, what they want to do. Lost in translation is to find that middle ground so that they can understand what that person, group, country, you name it, needs. And, and be of service. And so that's really where we play the role of the, the, the chief listener, actually. We listen, we hear what you're saying. We pick up these things that sound strange when they're communicating. Like, why would you say that instead of this? And what do you mean by that? Because as designers, we have fresh ears and fresh eyes. We don't know anything. Like, we really don't. But we're, we're the greatest learners, the greatest learners you'll ever find. because. If you want to do something that hasn't been done before, if you want to see how things could be, if you want to reimagine, dream, you name it, and you ask a designer because we will learn what it is that you want to do and we will help you get there. If you want more of the same, then you call an expert because they will give you exactly what you know. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, I mean, that's the, that's our role. That was the insight that we had from Frank Gary's office. You know, it was like, if you want to know what could be, what should be, what you could imagine, call us. If you want to know what the status quo is, call an expert and you'll get exactly what you want, what you've seen before and how it should function. You know, BC, we could talk a very long time. And if I could, I'd like to sit on a very little sofa in your brain and just listen. <laughs> Thank you for taking all this time out of your exceptionally precious daytime and your working time to be able to talk to us here on Prairie Design Lab. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful too for Prairie Design Lab. And thank you for having me on your show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Winnipeg misses you, I think. <laughs> you know, I miss Winnipeg too. I mean, it has such a place in my heart. It really does. I'm just, I mean, I'm a prairie chauvinist. I think <laughs> those are the values. <laughs> take good care, BC, until we meet again. Thank you again. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Terry. Okay, take care of yourself. <laughs> <laughs>
I am Obesi Williams, or BC for short, is a Winnipigian, as she calls herself, Winnipeg-born. She's also the co-founder and chief insights officer of the Massive Change Network. That's the global design consultancy that she co-founded with her husband, Bruce Mao. Prairie Design Lab is created with the help of the graduates, faculty, students, and worldwide allies, such as BC, of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, your writer, producer, and host. For more information about us, visit our website at prairiedesignlab.com or find us on Twitter at Prairie D Lab. You can hear us on the radio across southern Manitoba on UMFM 101.5 FM on Wednesday mornings at 1130. See you next week.